Well, this morning we are resuming again the Gospel of Luke. We'll be in Luke chapter 13. The last few verses, beginning with verse 31 of Luke chapter 13. We've considered some of the ways that that Luke will tie different, different portions of his work, his account of the ministry of Jesus and our text together. Uh, Many times they are tied together by particular themes, not so much following a chronology, but there will be a theme that will arise in one event or in one conversation. So Luke will take another event that ties into that and bring it together. But there are those occasions in which he does follow a chronology. One event will follow upon another in time, and so he records those events in time. And our text today is one such text, uh, he refers there in verse 31, that just at that time, so in other words, the events that are taking place here, beginning in verse 31 and following, are tied with the previous verses by their point in time. So although there may be, because of that, and there is, in fact, a difference, a distinction of themes to be considered from this text, there are also some constants that remain. And we've talked about some of the themes that have been prevalent, some of the ideas that we've considered in the last few few Lord's Day as we've been through the, the Gospel of Luke here, in particular chapter 13. One of those constants that remains in our text, although it's not thematically related, that constant is this, that God's kingdom is advancing. It is marching onward. The kingdom of God advances forward. Fourth, that theme continues through our text here today. That's a constant that does not change. Now, there's another constant that's, that we want to consider, at least to, to make note of, and that is the constant of Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. It goes back all the way to chapter 5, I believe, in verse 51, where there is reference there of Jesus having his heart, his eyes set upon going to Jerusalem. That theme's been picked up a few times since then. And here today in our text, the city of Jerusalem itself becomes a dominant theme. And so that's the other constant that we see here. That is, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. He has a purpose. He has a deliberate plan. And as He is going, he is, he is proclaiming, He is advancing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God advances in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in our text, begin reading with me here this morning in Luke chapter 13, verse 31 to the end of the chapter. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod, here Herod Antipas, Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes 
when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. There are those times in our Christian experience, I think it's necessary that we be reminded of the fact that God's work does indeed go on. That the kingdom of God is indeed being advanced. I think as much as we're made aware of uh, the persecuted church as we pray for our, our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world each Lord's Day. Now, there are many of those people living in situations and in, in places where, humanly speaking, and just coming and looking from the outside of things, are, there's very little evidence of God's power, God's sovereign power being advanced in those places. I just was sharing with, with Beth recently, just this past week, that how the Lord will so many times kindly and graciously answer our prayers for those things that we esteem to be great needs. And yet I'm also mindful of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who have so many of those prayer requests that they offer that go unanswered. They're living at nowhere near the level of comfort that we live. That those even in poverty... In America, know nothing of what many of our brothers and sisters are experiencing in their level of suffering. And so I can imagine it would be very easy in such a situation, I mean, would you not, to think that, is God really doing anything here? Is God really sovereign? Is God really advancing His kingdom? Is God's kingdom really winning the day? And then we look in our own personal lives. Isn't it so easy for any one of us to enter into what we deem panic mode? <laughs> you know, when we, we look at the situation that we may be in, and we have the things that we see that we need, and we're praying about these things, and it seemed that, seems that it's not being answered as we wish it would be answered. And then the enemy of our soul, he is no gentleman. He doesn't care that we're weak and that we're suffering, that we're struggling. He comes and he begins to feed on this, doesn't he? And it becomes, and we begin to, to question God. We begin to question, to some degree, Christianity altogether. Haven't you done that? Or am I the only one that stumbles so far? Well, we're reminded this way as we look today, as we look at our text. Reminded of the ways in which God's work is advanced. That God's work is advanced in our thinking and to the thinking of the world the most surprising of ways. Even in the midst of great opposition, even in the midst of resistance, God's purposes in and through Jesus Christ are being accomplished. And so Jesus lays claim to such power. He speaks with such authority. And if you look even in our text today, he speaks with, with such certainty and calmness that these are the things that are going on. And so with him claiming such power, it is a responsibility of us as his people that we affirm those things, that we believe those things, that we proclaim those things, that we encourage our own hearts with those things. We encourage the hearts of our brothers and sisters as well with those truths. So how is it that we see God's purposes accomplished in the midst of a fallen world, 
in the midst of a culture and a world and a people that are opposed to him, that are resistant against him, how do we still see the purposes of God being advanced in and through the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, first of all, we see that these purposes of God are accomplished in their domain, in the domain of a fallen world, in the domain of a people who are opposed and against God. In our text here, we see the Pharisees, they come to Jesus, stepping forward there. It says in verse 31, that sometimes some Pharisees, they approach, they step forward, they step forward from the crowd saying to him, go away, leave here for Herod wants to kill you. Now, I hope that there would be in the rhythm of this already, the antennas go up, the red flags, some sense of suspicion as we read this. What's going on here? These are not the friends of Jesus coming to caution him and to warn him, Jesus, for your own sake, we want you to be spared. You need to leave Galilee. Leave this place. So they bring their information. And here we are in the reminded of where Jesus is in his day. Reminded that Jesus is in, the, in, a, in a political realm. The realm of Herod Antipas. He was the Tetrarch of Galilee. He was the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great who was, who was the governor when Jesus was born. Herod the Great, the one who had all the, the infants killed in his effort to kill Christ himself. And his kingdom was divided among his children. And so Herod here, Herod Antipas, received Galilee, received Perea as a part of his father's divided kingdom. We also remember seeing Herod Antipas earlier in the Gospel of Luke because it was Herod who had John the Baptist in prison. You remember when John the Baptist came and he charged him with being in an immoral and even an incestuous relationship, but also just an immoral lifestyle that he lived. And so he had John the Baptist in prison. And then, because he was a man of, of no courage, he had John the Baptist beheaded because he would not go back upon his word when he made a foolish oath to Herodias' daughter. Luke chapter 9, verses 7 through 9, tells us that when he hears of Jesus, he's perplexed because he hears the rumors that are going around. Who is this Jesus? Some are saying, well, it's John the Baptist who's come back. He's risen from the dead. And so, so Herod's hearing this and he's thinking, I know I had John the Baptist, but who is this man? Who is this one? So he's perplexed by what he's hearing about Jesus. And so some have tried to piece together here. What I believe, and I agree, is the likely scenario of what's going on in this time frame. That here you have Herod Antipas, who is Tetrarch over Galilee, where Jesus is now ministering, where Jesus is also very popular with, with the common people. So Herod's desire is that Jesus would, in fact, leave Galilee. And so some have suspected that what has take, taken place here, that Herod has officially and unofficially sent out a friendly warning sent to by these Pharisees, sent to Jesus with the hope of intimidating or frightening Jesus into leaving Galilee, that likely that Herod was not of the frame of mind that he really wanted to kill Jesus because he was already bearing the guilt of having beheaded John. That he probably didn't really intend on killing Jesus himself, but he at least wanted him out of his territory. 
And so this word comes by these Pharisees. But we also know that the Pharisees were desirous here simply by the fact that they brought this message. They want Jesus out of Galilee as well. Simple reason being that Jesus is highly popular in Galilee. There are masses that are following after him. They're tripping over him. There are so many. And so the Pharisees would like for Jesus to leave Galilee, preferably to go to Jerusalem or vicinity where they have their numbers, they have their influence, and there they hope they might be able to turn the tide of public opinion against Jesus. And so there's that seems to be the likely scenario of what's going on here. Jesus' response here. In verse 32. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Here is Jesus. In the political domain of Herod Antipas. And although he may be some man who has who, who demonstrates some caution, he is also a man that is very impulsive and quick to do what he's the, he sees necessary, whatever it may be, even to the murdering of one such as John the Baptist. And here is Jesus in his political domain, in the domain of Herod. He's not off in a distant land <laughs> sending a message back. He is in his territory. And he is saying to them, go and tell that fox. What do we see in that? Well, one commentator says that to speak of Herod in that way is to defy him and any threat of his power. Certainly there seems to be some indication here to denote, by using the terminology of a fox, to to denote his slyness, to denote his craftiness. That he is one who is known for using others to accomplish his own ends. Hence even sending the Pharisees with this message. Trying to accomplish his end of being rid of Jesus once and for all, to have him removed from his territory. And then Jesus says this, and finishing that statement there in verse 32. I cast out, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now what do you see in that? Does that sound to you like that Jesus is, has begun to shudder? He's begun to take note and perhaps pack his bags and head across the Jordan River. Does it sound to you as though Jesus is is alarmed here? Well, I hope it doesn't because he's not. In fact, his response is one of contempt to Herod. His response is basically saying this, I do my work, I will advance my kingdom within your domain as I will, as I desire, as I purpose, until my goal is reached and my work is done. There's his response to Herod. I'm here for whatever length of time I choose to be. And he here proverbially uses the terminology of these three days. We're not three days removed, incidentally, from him going to Jerusalem. 
No, he's going to be there much longer. But he's using this proverb here, this, this one day and this two days and the third day to say, I will be here a determined time. A time determined by what I desire to do, not by what you intend to do. So I'm here for one day and for two days and for three days, the time frame which I choose to accomplish what I desire to accomplish when my work is done when I reach my goal. So we see here Christ, what is in fact a three-leveled, a three-tiered response. There, we see here that Jesus, in this, not only is He involved in this, in this political domain of Herod, that He is responding to Herod, but He is also passing this message and hoping, and I think with the intent that they follow the thinking here, passing this message through the Pharisees in their domain. And then he speaks of what he's doing, that he's casting out demons, that in this spiritual domain, he is advancing his kingdom as he will, that it makes no difference who his opposition may be. It makes no difference where the resistance may come from. Let it come from Satan himself. Let it come from Herod. Let it come from the Pharisees. Christ will do what he wills, as he wills, when he wills. That's the picture we should get from that. That Christ is sovereignly advancing the purposes of God within the domain of those who are opposed against Him. And perhaps insinuated in that message of Herod, Why should I fear you, little man? I'm, I'm casting out demons that are much more powerful than you. Little Herod, you're just a big fish in a small pond. And I will do what I will. So whatever level one chooses to consider, to evaluate, God's purposes are being advanced through Jesus Christ as He wills. And it's nothing but a fool's arrogance. A fool's arrogance to believe that he is capable of thwarting and of stopping the work of God. He has no idea what he's up against. And certainly Herod has no idea who he is up against here as he encounters Christ. And this is the glory of the Christ that we affirm that in the midst of a fallen world that he is accomplishing his purposes as he wills. And so we proclaim him as one who is so glorious, as one who is so powerful that there is none like our Lord Jesus Christ. There's none that can stand against him. There is none that can resist him. He, he does what he wills. Bring the opposition from kings. Bring the opposition from religious leaders. Bring the opposition from hell itself, from Satan and his followers. And Jesus Christ's kingdom advances as he desires to do so. So our confidence today, our confidence that Jesus Christ advances his message in that world, he continues to do that today in this world, and we are his agents, we are his ambassadors called to that work of advancing his kingdom. And his kingdom does advance, it progresses as he wills through his People. So we're called to advance through a bold, confident proclamation of the gospel. To believe in the power of the gospel. To believe that Christ will bring unto Himself whom He will. 
Let the message go forth. Let the critics respond. Let them reject. But the Word of God will go forth in power and it will seize the heart of those whom Christ wills to bring into Himself. It cannot be stopped. In places where Christianity has been absolutely forbidden, even today, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it advances. Put the barriers up. Put the steel curtains up. Put the bamboo walls up. Look at China right now. What's happened in that place? Millions of believers in that place. In spite of a, of a country that the communist rule has done all they can to close it down. They cannot stop the advancing of the kingdom of God as Christ wills to accomplish what He will, when He will, where He will, as He will. And He's still doing it today. He's doing it today through His people. He is doing it against the powers of Satan. It is Christ, the strong man, as we have seen in Jesus' words. The strong man having entered into Satan's house and he continues even to this day to plunder him. To strip him of what Satan once believed that he held with an iron fist. Jesus comes in at wills and he takes what he wants. That's the power of Christ. In the domain of those who are opposed to Him. Where they think they rule. Where they think they have the absolute sway and say. Jesus comes in and does as He wills. This is our Christ. This is the Christ that we proclaim. So let's have some boldness. Let's have some confidence in the proclaiming of the gospel. We say, well, I'm afraid the people are not going to respond. If the power of the gospel is in Christ, it is in His Spirit, let it go. (laughs) Let it go. It will bring back what God purposes. Preach the word. Proclaim the word. Let's do that. Is it really doing that in our day? Is the gospel truly bringing forth men from darkness into light? You want some proof? Are you in the kingdom of God today? There's your proof. What more do you need? There's your proof. That the Word of God came to your heart and Jesus Christ advanced His Word as He willed in your heart. You don't get any credit for that. It was Christ. Christ who captured our hearts. I just enjoyed hearing a few weeks ago Robert sharing with us his testimony. Robert, any question about who gets the credit in your salvation, brother? (laughs) It's God. God. And aren't you glad that that God saves us contrary to our will? (laughs) Say, wait a minute. What are you saying there? I mean, He he turns the will of man as He wills. It didn't wait for me to be a great seeker of God before God saved me. That God, in His mercy and His grace, He opened my eyes. He changed my heart. And I gladly came because of what He had done first. But until then, I could have cared less. It's the power of Christ. He goes where He wills. Some have come out of deep religious deception. Some of us came out of of a background being raised in a church. And there's a danger there. The danger of being so saturated in in a Christian background, growing up in church and Many of you homeschooling or going to Christian schools where you have, have the reality of the gospel brought to our hearing time after time after time and we lull ourselves to sleep. And that's exactly where I was. A false religious deception 
falsely comfortable. I had people tell me when I was truly converted, if there was ever a young man in our church that we thought was converted, it was Randy McReynolds. And when I came to Christ, I thought, oh, what in the world? <laughs> What's going on? Because I, hey, I, I followed the mode. You know, I did what I was supposed to do. But I had no heart for God. Some have come from worldly lifestyles. Some of you have come from, from a past and from, that you're absolutely ashamed of. And you look back and you think, how in the world, how in the world could God bring me from that? It's the power of the gospel. It is Christ advancing his kingdom as he wills within the domain of all of his enemies. And he comes in and he seizes the heart of whom he wills. That's Christ. That's Christ. He accomplishes the purposes of God within the domain of his enemies. Second, we see that he accomplishes the purposes of God even through their deeds. Even through the deeds of his enemies. Verse 32, as we just considered there, is clearly a reply. He says to them, go and tell that fox. Here's the message for Herod. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. On the third day, I reach my goal. That seems to be the end of the message to Herod. It seems that verse 33 is the message that he continues to the carriers, to the Pharisees. And this is what he says to them. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day. For it cannot be that a prophet would perish Outside of Jerusalem. And then we have the lament there. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not have it. So if we see verse 33 as really directed to the Pharisees or at least to their intent, their desire, if what we've proposed is correct. Their desire, likewise, to have him in Jerusalem. He reminds them of something here. Notice the terminology of verse 33. I must journey. On today and tomorrow the next day. For it cannot be. What do we see here? There's urgency in what Jesus is saying, but the urgency is not being applied from his enemies. The enemy, the urgency is not being applied from the Pharisees' desire to have him in Jerusalem. The urgency is being applied from God himself. It is the urgency of a divine purpose. There's a plan to be fulfilled. Therefore, I must, I must, because God has purposed it. I must journey today and tomorrow and the next day. And again, we have that proverbial three days. We're not again, we're not three days removed from his entrance into Jerusalem. It cannot be. You would get the picture at times that these Pharisees would have taken any opportunity. Any opportunity, wherever, whenever. To kill Jesus. And Jesus says, no. <laughs> it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. What's he saying here? I have a plan. Here's the plan. My time frame. My place. 
God's purposes will be fulfilled. It's a pointed reminder to them that He will, in fact, journey to Jerusalem, but it is according to His purposes, not theirs. He chooses the place. He chooses the time. We even see in Matthew chapter 26 that there was one occasion, once they wanted to kill Him, that was clear, but they were at least trying to decide, when's the best time to do this? Or at least are there some times that we should not try to kill Jesus? Look in Matthew chapter 26 with very quickly verses 3 and following. The chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. And they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival. Otherwise, a riot might occur among the people. Guess what? It was during the festival. Because that was Jesus' plan. It was God's plan. He will, in fact, verse 33, speaking of himself, fitting in the line of of the prophets of the Old Testament that we have, he will, in fact, perish. Perish in Jerusalem. Perish at their hands. And Jerusalem... Strangely named the holy city. <laughs> Jesus didn't call it that. Jesus gives it the name the city that kills the prophets. And this holy city will once again bring blood guilt upon their hands. The greatest of crimes imaginable against their own God, against their Creator. As we see there in verse 34. Guilty of, you've killed the prophets, you've stoned those sent to her. And this time, you're going to crucify the one that was sent to you. See, God's sovereign purpose accomplished through the deeds of of evil men. We hear Peter at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, if you want to turn with me very quickly. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. Jesus, Peter here preaching at Pentecost, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. 23, this man delivered to you what? By your own savvy? By your own cunning? By your own wit? This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of his death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. What do we see here? We see God's predetermined plan according to the foreknowledge of God. Yet we see guilt. Guilt. Boy, he's very pointed, isn't he? Peter just, he takes it right to the heart. He said, this man that you nailed to a cross, 
Oh, maybe you didn't do it personally, but you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, the Roman soldiers. You used Rome to accomplish your ends, and if you could have done it, you would have done it. And you're guilty. You're guilty of a crime against God. But still, this is the predetermined plan of God according to His foreknowledge. You've not done anything outside of what God has predetermined would take place. You didn't, take, you didn't catch Jesus at a weak moment. You didn't catch Him off guard. That's the words of Jesus. I lay down my life. No man takes it from me. But we see the great work of redemption that has accomplished God's purpose, God's plan by Jesus Christ being crucified by His death. Redemption is possible. But the men who did it were guilty of a crime against God. We see also in the book of Acts chapter 3, Peter's second sermon. Acts chapter 3, verses 13 and following. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate, delivered there, delivered up. He's talking about the crucifixion here. When He had decided to release Him. You disowned the holy and the righteous one, and you asked for a murder to be granted to you. You put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact of which we are witnesses. And on the basis of faith in His name, it's the name of Jesus which has strengthened this man whom you see and know. Faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect health in the presence of you all. And then we see in Acts chapter 4, Verses 10 and following. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified. And there seemed to be a little bit of debate when uh, Mel Gibson came out with his film on the Passion of Christ, which I don't endorse. I never saw it. I don't plan to see it. But there was some charges made that, well, it was an anti-Semitic film because it charged the Jews with crucifying Jesus. I, I, I'm not a great fan of Mel Gibson, but I did appreciate what he said in one of his interviews. He said, well, there were no Swedes there, folks. There were Jews. Boy, Peter just wouldn't... He would have been anti-Semitic, wouldn't he? Peter, you can't say that. And that's what he says right to them. You killed him. And they knew it. In fact, they were proud of it. You killed him. Then Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and following. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Herod, Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel. All those involved, all those in opposition against Christ. Doing what? In verse 28. Doing whatever your hand and your purposes predestined to occur. What do we see here? We can see that the purposes of God are accomplished even through the deeds of His enemies, even though their deeds be wicked and evil. 
What's accomplished through something as evil as having Jesus Christ who is God Himself? What horrendous crime that is to, to put God to death. What a horrendous crime. And what a wonderful result comes forth, forth from that as the purposes of God are accomplished so that redemption might be provided for His people. His work accomplished even through the deeds of his murderers, are they guilty of murderous crime and of sin? Well, look one more time with me to the book of Acts, chapter 7. <clears throat> Here, just before Stephen is stoned, he gets pretty bold too, doesn't he? Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Which one of the prophets... Let's go back to verse 51. Just, just get it all. <clears throat> you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? That's pretty close to what Jesus said, isn't it? And it was lament. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. Here's the sentence that Stephen pronounces, your betrayers and your murderers. You who received the laws as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Are they guilty? Yes. Guilty of murdering? Yes. Guilty of vicious crimes against God? Yes. Did they thwart the will and the purposes of God? Not on your life. God's purposes. God's plans accomplished. Now, that always raises the objection. Well, if it was God's predetermined plan, and God's plan includes using the sin and the weakness of men... Who can resist the will of God? So how can it be that I'm held accountable? I mean, if it's God's will, I can't I can resist the will of God. So I'm doing all what God's willed, that He's predetermined. So how is it that I can be possibly held guilty? Well, apart from the fact that you are a willing participant, there's a reality that comes down to, because that's the objection brought forth by Paul in Romans chapter 9, isn't it? Who can resist the will of God? And you know Paul's response, don't you? You ought to by now. I've referenced it enough times. His response is this. In Romans chapter 9, verse 20. Who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who do you think you are that you would dare to raise such an objection against God? You think too much of yourself and too little of Him. Close your mouth and own your guilt. You are guilty. So we live in a world, we acknowledge evil, we acknowledge man's guilt for his sin against God, for their sins against His people, and against the church of God. 
But we also we rest confident and we are fearless in the sovereign, sovereign purposes of God who orders all things, wickedness included. The evil intent of men's hearts included according to His purposes, according to His plan. Folks, listen. Romans 8.28 has to include the evil intent of men or it's not true at all. That God works in all things. If God works in just most things, it's not a whole lot of comfort, is it? That even the evil, the wicked intents of men must be, and in fact are, revealed to us as under the sovereign control of God. They do as He wills. Now, how does that happen? And God is not the author of sin. That God, is, in fact, is not the one forcing men to sin because of what He has predetermined. How does that happen? Simple answer. I don't know. That's the way that God has made things. That's the way that God has revealed things to us. And we live in His world, and He has revealed to us through the Scripture, not as we might determine, but as He has revealed to us so that we would know it. This is the case. This is the way it is. That God is holy. That He does not tempt men to sin. He does not compel men to sin. That sin comes by the free choice of men. That we're willing sinners. There's no objection raised in our heart of being against God. So we marvel... And we glory in our God that His work and His will not only is unthwarted, but it even is advanced at the hands of His enemies. So we'll not be alarmed at those days when evil has the apparent victory. It seems that, the, that evil is triumphing. That we rest assured that it is only by divine order and it is only short-lived. Within the purposes of of God. Say, so, well, you don't know what degree of evil men are advancing. Look at what men are doing. Truly, you wouldn't say that God has anything to do with that. You wouldn't say anything of God is in that, would you? Listen. Whatever evil may be advanced by men in our day, it pales in comparison to the events of Christ's crucifixion. You find me any crime, you find me any sin that compares with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ to be charged to the hands of men. And if God can be controlling through the greatest crime committed by men, Jesus Christ's crucifixion, if that, if that can be used to accomplish God's purpose according to what He has predetermined, as we saw there, they acted only... According to God's plan, how much more are the lesser sins of our day and in our lives under His control? There's been no sin, no offense committed against any of us that compares to, to Calvary. And if some way the purposes of God are accomplished through everything, through, through Pilate, through Herod, through the Gentiles, through the Jews, all over there doing only what God determined they would do, the purpose of God being perfectly advanced as God has determined, then I can believe that whatever crisis is in my life 
God can use and in fact is using for his purposes as well because I am his child. And finally, we see here the purposes of God being accomplished even in their demise, in the demise of those who are his enemies. Jesus here in verse 35 in prophetic fashion, speaking as a prophet. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. That just sounds like one of those Old Testament prophets, doesn't it? Your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he speaks of their city's desolation, the demise, and of an eventual encounter that they are going to have with him. That's what he says. You will not see me until you're going to see me. You're going to have an encounter with Christ. A once and for all final encounter. Now, exactly when is this event? What's this referring to? And to be honest with you, there's disagreement here among commentators. Part of the disagreement comes because we see when Jesus does, in fact, enter Jerusalem, and will be there at some future point. <laughs> but it's recorded in Luke chapter 19. We see it almost verbatim here. That when Jesus is entering into the holy city, entering into Jerusalem, who I said it, the holy city, didn't I? <laughs> entering into Jerusalem, that almost verbatim, that's what the people are saying. Blessed he who comes in the name of the Lord. Which is a quotation from Psalm 118, verse 26. So, it appears, on the one hand, that he's talking about his, what we refer to as his triumphal entry into Jerusalem before the Passover. You'll see me. When you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The other dominant view and the view which I, I agree with. Is that it's in fact here speaking of the day of judgment. Partly because of the word when he says there in verse 35. It says you will not see me until the time comes when. You say. And I think he's still speaking here largely, not just to Jerusalem, but to the religious elite, to the Pharisees. And there's going to be a time in, in history. There's going to be a point in time when everyone, all those who walk in opposition against him in this day, that one day they will see Christ and they will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of of the Lord. That quote there from Psalm 118, verse 26, it follows the prophecy of the rejected stone there, about the cornerstone that's rejected in Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23. And the implication here, wherever people do disagree, the implication is this that there's a time of a future encounter when they will recognize Jesus for who he is and the grasp and they grasp the magnitude of their crimes that they have committed against him and they will say in fact unwillingly but they will say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord this cornerstone which we as the builders once rejected he's become the chief stone and we've got to acknowledge it and that's what Paul says in Philippians, isn't it? 
that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. The name high above every other name. Lord. They're going to confess it. And so Jesus here, the words, prophetic word that He gives to them in this day is that you will one day see Me. And what's going to be happening there? My purposes. My purposes still being accomplished. And my purposes include that the tongue of every human being will confess Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bend before Him and acknowledge Jesus is God. It will happen. So even in their demise, and that's what it will be for these, there's no reason here to suspect that this is another opportunity to call them. It seems to be the last word. Your house has left you desolate. I say to you, there's that authority, isn't it? I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You'll acknowledge Jesus Christ for who he is. And then as his enemies, you will be cast into eternity apart from him. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says that they will look upon him whom they pierced. They're going to see him. And if there's ever going to be a time when I don't take this phrase lightly and I don't intend to be like that, I mean it quite literally. There's ever a time when someone's going to say, oh my God. Because that's who they're going to see. What have we done? To stand before Christ. This one who walked with them. This one who lived among them. They're going to see that face again. And he's going to be their judge. So all of a sudden. The objections. The obstinacy. The resistance. The rejection. The rebellion against him. All of a sudden is going to seem so hollow. And so foolish. And so absurd. But it's going to be too late. Rejected the Savior. Now you have nothing but your sin. And will God be wringing His hands and all of eternity in sorrow those who are in hell? No, it's not the picture you see. You see a righteous and a just God and a judge consigning men to their due reward. His eternal purposes accomplished. Now we understand the balance of that. I find no delight in the death of the wicked. We understand that. But we also understand this, that what God purposes, His enemies will be conquered and crushed and destroyed. The day of judgment will in fact be a great joy for God's people, but it will be a great sorrow for his foes. A great day of dread. And it will be a day of righteous vindication of Christ against all of his enemies. When they will see him for who he is. Folks. If you've not come to Christ, 
that's not where you want to be. That's not the way you want to get there. Bow now or bow then. But you will bow. Own Him now. Confess Him as your Lord and Savior. Owning your sin. Confessing your rebellion against Him. Own Him now. Or be disowned by Him then. But His will shall be accomplished. There will be no fools in hell. Those who in, their, in this day now would raise their fist against God and say, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with Christianity. Whatever the reason. There will be none who get in hell and say, I won! I won, God! Look! I never did come to you. I won! And if you want to call that a victory, have at it. It's a pretty shallow victory. As you acknowledge Jesus Christ once and for all. This is the Christ that we serve. A sovereign Lord. He's not weak. He's not thwarted. He's not stopped. He advances as He will. And woe be to the man who dare thinks that he can rise his little will against God and win. There's no victory there. Let's pray. Father, so merciful. Oh, that we serve a God such as this is beyond our comprehension. And we cannot help but fall before you and, and marvel. The times that we've doubted, the times that we've feared. Lord, you're good. Pray that you would take these words that we've considered today, this truth from your Scripture, apply as is pleasing. Lord, anything that is merely of my own imagination or thoughts, let it be taken away from us, blown away by the wind. Oh, Lord, the truth, truth by the Spirit of God would pierce our hearts today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.